0: Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, what we can't not talk about. Sometimes the work
1: of art is, it's just a kind of experiment by the artist. It's it's an attempt to create something beautiful and something that's of cultural value that people can contemplate. And it shouldn't be, you know, preaching to you. And like, you know, that's what I think Wilde was objecting to was art that was just too preachy and like, you know, do the right thing. Like a work of art doesn't have to have that. It has its own domain, which you should respect.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another, yet a little different episode of What We Can't Not Talk About. For those of you who are listening, this episode might sound just just like any other episode, and I actually hope that the sound quality you'll get this time is just going to be as good as all our episodes. But for those of you who are watching on our YouTube channel, I think that the difference is quite clear. Today, I'm joined live by our guest, uh, Dr. Paul Fortunato, Associate Professor of English at the University of Houston downtown. Welcome, Paul.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for accepting our invitation. Yeah, and today, it's going to be something between a podcast and a lecture, or conversation, we're going to talk about one of your favorite topics, though. Uh, I think, at least, is one of your favorites, yeah. Oscar Wilde. Yes. Before we do that, though, before also I also explain why we at The Austin Institute chose to talk about Oscar Wilde, would you like to describe maybe your song to our audience?
1: Well, I got interested in Wilde when I was an undergraduate, and I was taught in my regular undergraduate class that he was a rebel and he was tearing down culture and destroying Western civilization. That was his his identity. He was a, like a figure like Nietzsche, beyond good and evil. And so you read it and, and you see his life and you see his works and the, the, the picture of Dorian Gray and a kind of amoral character. And I thought, okay, that's what he was. But then I was reading his biography. I was actually in the cloisters in New York City because I was studying in New York City. And I was reading Oscar Wilde there with my friend. And it went through his life and how he made his big splash on the West End Theater. And then he went to jail because homosexuality was illegal in, in England at the time. And he got out of jail and he went to France. And, and then he was received into the Catholic Church. And I said, wait a minute, where did that come from? That didn't seem to you know, have any precedent." In his whole life, so that kind of led me to kind of do research on him. That there was more going on with Wild
0: than so I was So you're, you're interested in Wild, you know? I I wanted to know more or less. You know, your undergraduate study, graduate studies. I know you're a professor in Houston. But so, I, I what I didn't know is that your interest for Wild traces back to the time. So, is, were we talking about your undergraduate? Yes.
1: Studies? Yeah, that was a long time ago. That was my undergraduate wow. studies. So, yeah.
0: So I think I was correct when I said he's probably one of your favorite topics.
1: Yes, it is. No, he's great. I love well, him. Well, yeah.
0: that's great to know. So you guys, you all know that we're really talking with someone who likes what is going to talk about. Now, I should say more as I anticipated about the reason why we decided to talk about Oscar Wilde. Truly, you know, we, we talk about great books, but then why about this controversial figure? And I think that our audience might remember how a couple of months ago at uh, the beginning of the year now, we had uh, Professor Carl Truman. He gave a lecture uh, for us in the Salem Center. Uh, and also in this very room, uh, we read his book, Strange New World, which I think and hope that some of our audience also has read. So we read it here in this, again, the same room with my young professional reading group that we have here, the Good Life Reading Group, for a couple of months. And what Dr. Truman does in that book, for those who haven't read it or do not remember. He traces a history of how we got to today's confusion. Uh, and it's a history of thinkers and ideas that led us to the sexual revolution. And in doing that, Dr. Truman gives particular weight to the figure of Oscar Wilde. He mentions this as a central figure. And he, in particular, argues that Wilde is the perfect heir of Nietzsche of the Nietzschean rebellious thought, as you were mentioning. So he writes that the rebellious Nietzschean impulse is found in three particular aspects of Wilde's life and thought. The first being that the artist is the clearest exemplar of how life should be lived because he self-creates himself and he does not conform or follow the herd. The second one is that in Wilde, art is detached from any moral code. And then the third one, ethic is just a matter of aesthetics. And just a matter of taste. So now that I am sitting with an expert on Oscar Wilde and you had started already to mention these points even though we didn't prepare this, <laughs> I wanted to say I would like to go even one by one, right? You know, and sure. okay. and whether, whether Truman in this case was, you know, is it totally right? Or like, is it so accurate to say, for instance, that the artist is, is the man who creates himself and in being that is the perfect Nietzschean model of the new man, I would say that Wilde is
1: making an argument of along those lines that you're creating yourself. Uh, the thing is, that can be taken in a strong or a weak sense. And I I think Wilde was, an, was a journalist, so he would say things with a very extreme, in a, an extreme form, but you had to see it in the context of all of his work. And I, I, I suspect, I love Truman's work, and I, I think he's Basically right about everything that he's saying in that book, but I think he's missing something on Wild here. And actually, actually, I do think that Truman's a little bit wrong, and that's I'm I'm, I'm going to be careful here because I, I mean I don't want to take take on Truman because I think Wild is right about something because there's something about the modern world that Wild wanted to embrace. He wanted to dive into the consumer culture world and. Others, and, and sometimes it's Marxists, sometimes it's Christians like Truman, don't want art and culture to get too entangled in, in the consumer culture world because it because it can cheapen it, it can distort it and ruin it and, it, and it does sometimes. But I think what Wilde's insight was that it doesn't have to, and, and that consumer culture, and, and we create ourselves to some extent through our consumer culture. What I buy, the fandoms that I'm a fan of, the styles of fashion that I follow, I'm creating myself. And, and a, a young person will kind of like choose their styles of music and, and their fandoms and, and even, even their religious tastes. And those things, you are creating yourself. Um, that, that's the way, and that's what I'm saying by a weak sense of self-creation. Obviously, no one creates themselves. I mean, you know, if you believe in God, God creates us. We, we come out of our parents. I mean, like we come out of a cultural language, all that stuff we're totally predetermined by. And, and that's fine. And that's good. No one creates themselves in that sense. But, but yeah. And, and I think, uh, Wilde was onto something when he's saying that we are creating ourselves through our consuming practices and habits and. Anyway,
0: that's- I think I got. I think I understood what you meant. And that, so, at this point, you would say that the kind of self creation that Wilde is talking about is not that radical and absolute self creation that Nietzsche would, the Nietzsche would be predicated. he's like it's right. not self creating everything. No. Right. Right. Okay. Which I think, based on what else, the other things that I know about him, the other things, I think it does make sense because. He does sound like that there is a difference, for instance, in, in Christian language between, well, we could call it what we would call sin, or in non Christian language, you could call it limit. And it's one thing to say there are no limits, and what I'm saying, it's like, well, I'd rather cross this line. You know, yeah. like, you, you're still admitting that there is a line.
1: Right, right.
0: So he talks, so you would argue he considers the. Con- and what do you mean by consumer culture? Like, if.
1: So, consumer culture, like the things that that we buy and that we become, they they also kind of shape our identities. I mean, if I can back up for a second, in the more traditional cultures of the ancient world, the medieval world, who was governing culture? The state, the religion, you know, Islam or Christianity or Buddhism, they would kind of legislate and figure out, like, here's how we're going to make culture. Here's what, a, what, what are the artworks. Here's how people are going to make music and then be influenced by it, the rituals that we're going to do. In the modern world, we're in a multicultural situation. There is no one dominant religion. And so consumer culture is very involved in all those things of, of creating works of art, like the things we decorate our house, houses with, the things we decorate ourselves with, um, the fashions that we follow. So all that's consumer culture, and I mean like becoming a fan of a show, a TV show, I'm watching uh, the Rings of Power right now, the Lord of the Rings uh, series you know and then you become a fan, and then you have a community and you it, it, it does kind of shape your identity and your community so all of that is what i mean by consumer culture
0: I, I I completely understand, and so you would say you know taking it away from from wild that you would argue that it's extremely important if we want to. Transform the culture to actually get very involved with the consumer culture,
1: right? Not
0: to decide to do the opposite.
1: Exactly right. Yeah, and and, and you know, I'm in an English department, and the the, fun, the the reason I'm kind of excited about Wild, even today, like I've sort yeah. of come back to him. I wrote my book in 2007, so it's been a while, but I'm kind of realizing like there's this untapped work in Wild on thinking about the power and the and the productive positive power of consumer culture as well as negative power because it can be destructive that has not been talked about and english departments have completely ignored it why i mean partly because we're sort of dominated by marxist criticism i mean that's sort of the kind of background of a lot of critical work in the english departments so it has no interest in consumer culture or it just sees it as bad and so wild i think his theories and, and others besides wild i mean i get into tolkien actually um as, as an example of someone who's deeply involved in consumer culture and and the positive possibilities of working in consumer culture, because there is no one dominant religion or one dominant kind of arbiter of taste and culture. So you've got to dive into that world and get your hands dirty, so to speak.
0: Yeah. On a personal level, I completely agree with you, but I think that also at a level of idea, it makes a lot of sense. What, You know, the other point is that in wild, art is completely detached from morality or that ethic is just a matter of aesthetics. Would you agree that that's the case?
1: So he he says things that play with that idea. I mean, mean, when he wrote The Picture of Dorian Gray, which is this big novel, he was immediately criticized for being immoral. And and so, uh, because he does play with morality, and there's an amoral character who kind of shapes this younger character, which is Dorian Gray, and and influences him into doing all these bad, evil things, including like murdering people and destroying people's lives. And Wilde responded to that criticism by doubling down on on things. And and he wrote a preface to his book, and he says, all art is amoral. Or I think he all art is immoral. Like it's like deliberately against morality. And he wasn't, I don't think he literally meant that, but he wanted to like kind of defend himself. So he was kind of in that specific moment that he wrote that. It wasn't that he was thinking, because if you read the novel, it's completely moral. I mean, well, like, yeah, I mean, it, that's it's, what, it's, I wanted
0: to talk about th- that book a little later on, but like let's let's talk about it now. I mean, I read it as a teenager, and I found it profoundly. You know, it was a great teaching.
1: Yeah, it's a great book because it shows that the person. Who tries to live an amoral life, a kind of Raskolnikov? who is it's like, okay, I'm gonna. Yeah. Uh, there's no like truth. There's no good and evil. So I'm just gonna do what I want. And and then at the end, so Dorian Gray has done all these things, okay, just to kind of explain the story. Yeah. The, there's this magical thing in the story. It's kind of fantasy magical realism where someone's done this beautiful painting of him, the picture of Dorian Gray, and he's this beautiful young man, and and he's looking at the painting and he's thinking, wow, that painting's gonna stay young and and handsome and I'm going to get old and ugly. And I wish, I wish I could trade places with that painting and I could stay young and healthy and the painting would bear the marks of age and sin. And he got his wish. So then all of a sudden the evil things that he does, like when he murders somebody, the painting gets blood on its hands or when he he like, you know, destroys this woman's life by like uh, jilting her like, you see this evil smile on the on the painting and and so at the end he's thinking ah I've done all these things but there's only one thing that's gonna get me in trouble this painting I know I'll destroy it and then no one will ever ever catch me so he stabs the painting and as he stabs the painting you hear a a a shout and then his servant goes up the stairs because he's in his in his attic very Freudian, and he, and and, he, and he, the servant goes into the attic and sees Dorian Gray on the floor. He's stabbed himself, and he's old and wrinkled, and his painting is young and, and beautiful again. And so it shows when you try to destroy your conscience, you destroy yourself.
0: Yeah, and it ends up in suicide. I mean, yeah. it's a perfect, I don't know, I think it would be a lesson for, it is a mer- the story that you tell kids, you know, for for the morality of
1: it—it's um, completely moral, right? Yeah.
0: And maybe there is something also in the provocative preface, you know, to the book. All art is immoral. That plays. You send me the the the. the uh, I got a, a version of your book recently. It was only a week ago, so I must say I, I haven't had the time Don't to worry. read it to read it all. But like you talk in the book is about the modernist... modernist Aesthetics. Aesthetics and the consumer culture and Oscar Wilde. Uh, and we can link to, to the book too in this episode because, you know, there might be people out there that are a lot more interested in this than, you know, the general conversation that we're going to have now that everyone can enjoy. But when you mentioned it in the... Pre- you know, it's, it's a topic of conversation, especially also in this room with the people that come here. We argue a lot uh, about books and about music and about movies, wondering whether they should give us a message, right? Mm-hmm. And, and our position is usually no. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. meant to provoke or make you think. So this all art is immoral. I mean, sounds like the perfect introduction for anyone who doesn't want to be told what to think, but just want to make up his mind and, and, and figure out whether Dorian would be really happy in le- living the life the way it did or not.
1: Right. Well, and, and so there's two points I want to make. And, and one is that the picture during Gray, the novel, has a very strong moral. So sometimes he broke his ruling and he, would, and he had a strong moral. Other times he was more circumspect. And he wouldn't, and he would create a story or a work of art that, that didn't have a clear moral. Like, like Salome is a kind of, I mean, you can sort of tease a moral out of that, but Salome is, is a play about Salome, the woman who asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And she danced for her uncle, slash father, in law um, Herod, and um, so like so. Th- there's no clear moral in that play. So sometimes the work of art is it's just a kind of experiment by the artist. It's it's an attempt to create something beautiful and something that, that's of cultural value that people can contemplate. And it shouldn't be you know preaching to you. And like you know th- that's what I think wild was objecting to was art that was just too preachy and like, you know, do the right thing. Like, a work of art doesn't have to have that. I mean, it has its own domain, which you should respect. And I think Wilde was correct. And I, that's what I think Wilde was trying to say when he said that art shouldn't have like a teaching function primarily.
0: You know, I, I could relate it to a, a recent movie that is in the in the theater, The Whale.
1: I haven't seen it yet.
0: Well, you know, that's how I felt. Like, uh-huh. I I didn't... The beauty of a movie like that to me is that you can come out of the, movie, of the theater with your own ideas that you had before or change, but it, it's, not, it's not the movie that is going to tell you what is right and what is wrong about mm-hmm. the things you're watching. Anyway, this, for anyone who wants to go to watch the movie, <laughs> I just made a great ad. I wanted to actually with you, you know, to to discuss Truman's view about wild. I wanted to go... I I wanted to talk about the picture of Dorian Gray and how, you know, what you made of how the life of, I mean, what we see in the pictures that a life of sin corrupts. you. Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. not, you know, it's not without effect. So I think that the morality there is pretty evident. I actually wanted to mention another play, which I thought plays very well into the mission of our Institute, family and marriage. And and the play is, of course, an ideal husband. Mm. So I remember reading it as a teen, not really liking that much. And I took it back, skimmed through, the, and then watched the adaptation of a movie, which I think it was also very well done. And I realized that, you know, the morality of it, at least to me, there, there, there are some passages that seem to me to, to be speaking of things that maybe we risk underestimating when we present while the way it was presented to you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you don't mind, I, I just took some passages that I would like to read together.
1: Sure, I love, um, I love reading wild, yeah
0: do you do you want to summarize the plot like sure two for our audience it's gonna be so much better than
1: that. yeah an ideal husband is what's it called when you blackmail somebody it's a blackmail play where this uh, rich woman comes into the life of a a man who's high up in the British government I, I think he works in the Foreign Office, which is the international Affairs office and um she's got this secret letter that shows that he was bribed when he was a young man, which made him his fortune, which allowed him to have his career, which he has. So she is coming in basically saying like, if you don't do what I want you to do and support this other bill, I'm going to destroy you. And so he starts to try to fight with her over this. And, and he, at one point he gives in. And anyway, in the end, he doesn't give in. He does the right thing. His friend, Lord Goring, saves him by getting the letter and destroying it. and and so. Um, they live heavily, heavily ever after in the sense that now his, he and his wife reconcile because she was, she saw that he had done this bad thing and she was really Yeah, upset and him.
0: about this blackmailing moment is, you know, when the wife realizes what happened is the, the lines that I, that I wanted to, to read. Okay. Like it's this moment of, you know, she, this woman realizing that this ideal husband she had is maybe not, not that ideal. And I'm glad that we didn't give too many details because it's worth reading and yes. it's worth, you know, if you don't have time to read, you can watch about it. I would always suggest reading. There's a
1: film version too. It's good.
0: Um, yeah, so I I'm gonna read Lady Chiltern as the wife, and then you can be Robert. Sir Robert Chiltern. Yeah. Okay. No, don't speak. Say nothing. Your voice wakes terrible memories. Memories of things that made me love you. Memories of words that made me love you. Memories that now are horrible to me. And how I worshipped you. You were to me something apart from common life. A thing pure, noble, honest, without stain. The words seemed to me finer because you were in it. And goodness more real because you lived. And now, oh, when I think that I made of a man like you my ideal, the ideal of my life.
1: There was your mistake. There was your error. The error all women commit. We can't Why can't you women love us, faults and all? Why do you place on us monstrous pedestals? Why do you place us on monstrous pedestals? We all have feet of clay, women as well as men. But when we men love women, we love them knowing their weaknesses, their follies, their imperfections. Love them all the more it may be for that reason. It is not the perfect but the imperfect who have need of love. It is when we are wounded by our own hands or by the hands of others that love should come to cure us. Else, what use is love at all? All sins except the sin against itself, love should forgive. All lives save loveless lives, true love should pardon. A man's love is like that. It is wider, larger, more human than a woman's. Women think that they are making ideals of men. What they are making of us are false idols merely. You made your false idol of me. And I had not the courage to come down, show you my wounds, tell you my weaknesses. I was afraid that I might lose your love, as I have lost it now. And so last night, you ruined my life for me. Yes, ruined it. What this woman asked of me was nothing compared to what she offered to me. She offered security, peace, stability. The sin of my youth that I had thought was buried rose up in front of me, hideous, horrible, with its hands at my throat. I could have killed it forever, sent it back into its tomb, destroyed its record, burned the one witness against me. You prevented me. No one but you. You know it. And now what is there before me but public disgrace, ruin, terrible shame, the mockery of the world, a lonely, dishonored life, a lonely, dishonored death, it may be someday. Let women make no more ideals of men. Let them not put them on altars and bow before them or they may ruin our other lives as completely as you. You, whom I have so wildly loved, have ruined mine.
0: Yeah, so um, we can, you know, a lot can be said on those <laughs> I, I hope you agree on my choice of picking yes, them, but, yes. You know, okay, there is this idea of, like, men loving a way, women loving another. I would, for, like, set yeah, that can, aside. Yeah. But setting that aside, I think this passage could be read in a, in a first way, like in a Machiavellian way. Right? Mm-hmm. So, oh come on, there's no truth. There is no, there's no good husband, there's no good wife, no one is really worthy of love. Just, you know, make peace with the fact that we're all corruptible. Mm-hmm. And lim- you can read it this way. Mm-hmm. The way I read it
1: mm-hmm.
0: is pretty different, which because I mean, to me, this is a message of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. This is a message of true love, right? Like as Professor Agneros writes in his latest book. Quoting someone else, like, but you will always marry the wrong person, right? <laughs> like, there is like no such thing as a woman or a man that will not disappoint you. Disappoint you deeply, right? Like, do things that if we don't understand it, we're gonna end up in divorce constantly. And so to me, this this was speaking of a love that is probably exactly what we talk about when we talk about the love of marriage. Do you think I'm going too far with this? Or would you agree that this is a, this a is, good the, the, reading of it? That This is a
1: lesson in forgiveness. Yeah. It is, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And number and, you one, know, it did remind me that it's very similar to Dorian Gray where the guy's trying to destroy his past. But you can't destroy your past. That's one thing. He's failing to face up to his own past. And then the, the second thing is is the forgiveness thing. Um, and he's, frankly, quite cruel to his wife saying it's your fault i mean it's both of their faults but the reality is yeah people need to forgive and he's teaching her that lesson and she does learn it in the play she she for, both forgives him because there's a moment where she's saying okay i'm going to forgive him but he's got to quit his job because his career is tainted by this crime that he committed 20 years ago and uh, the friend lord goring who's kind of the, the confidant for both of them says to her don't don't make him make that sacrifice just because he has this powerful position and 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 he's involved in 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 like a higher a high level of power. Don't destroy his career. I mean, okay, people should be punished, but don't unnecessarily punish him and like make him into this kind of self-hating, like you know, self-flagellating person. Let let him be forgiven and move on. And so she does. And so and I, I see this even as. I mean, I'm, I'm tying it to consumer culture, but I mean, any, any issue of, of having power in the world, whether it's consumer power or political power, like the power to influence and, and move things in the world or have wealth are, are good things. They should, you shouldn't have to become like a hermit, like in order to like live a moral life. I mean, you need to be involved in the, in the world of, of hierarchies and power and. And in his case, it's political power.
0: Which might involve, you know, making mistakes.
1: Right. But yeah. as you
0: forgive others. No, that's exactly right. I think as you forgive others, you forgive yourself. And forgiving yourself, you're okay. Like, you keep the responsibility of your position and of your job. Like, it's that, that, that meter that you have with others that is not forgiving and doesn't forgive you then leads us to paralysis. Right? Because right. there is no, it, and it's probably a very, it's a pride it's a sin of pride to even. I would say that, so, yeah. Right, to think that um, that one could live a flawless life.
1: A perfectionism. I mean, and that's yeah, and, and um, that that keeps that tends to come up in, in these plays by Wilde and these yeah. uh, stories by Wilde in uh, his other plays. And in fact, even in this play, a uh, lady Chiltern here. I think at some point she's kind of described as a Puritan, and and um, and and. Yeah,
0: Puritanism is bad.
1: Like, the, a, a kind of adherence to law and excessive, you know, formality is destructive. of Yeah, of life. without
0: like, forgiveness, yeah. Without forgiveness, and, yeah. And, we, and I want to talk about his joining the church at the end of his life. But another sentence that I found fascinating in talking about, you know, what was love for Wilde, basically, is uh, something that Lord Goring, so Sir Children Friend, the one that is going to end up helping him, says, And he's talking to Lady Children and he says, No, Lady Children, I'm not a pessimist. Indeed, I'm not sure that I quite know what pessimism really means. All I do know is that life cannot be understood without much charity. Cannot be lived without much charity. It is love and not German philosophy that is the true explanation of this word. Whatever may be the explanation of the next. so." Wild 10, German philosophy, zero, right? <laughs> like, he scored high, But like, is he talking? Could we, could we argue that he's talking about sensual love and pleasure? Or is he talking here about, you know, referring, using the word charity, is talking about a love that is the Christian love?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think so. And it's funny because he mentions the German philosophy thing. I don't think Wild read Nietzsche directly because he wasn't translated yet into English, he had been translated into French, but anyway. But the ideas were in the world. I mean, so like, he would have been familiar with Nietzschean-type ideas, and that's why, like, and even in the play, Sir Robert voices a pretty Nietzschean idea, where he says, uh, like, when he's first telling Lord Goring, like, I committed this crime, like, 15 years ago when I was a young man, and I I learned, I was the uh, protege of this uh, Baron Arnheim, this Austrian... Uh, German philosopher type guy who taught me the, the philosophy of power. What's at stake in the world? Power. Power over other men. That's what's real in the world. And Lord Goring tells him, "What a shallow creed. That's 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 not true." And and so yeah, I think it's it is a mistake to put wild with Nietzsche. I mean, I think they're very different. Also, with very different than Marx. I mean, that's to pick on Truman again. Um, I think pairing Wilde both with Nietzsche and with Marx is is way off the mark in terms of the core of Wilde's thought.
0: We don't read about his married it's life, and we yeah. don't read about the De Profundis, the letter that he wrote from from prison, from prison, and about his conversion and joining the. So I think that that could be a final last topic sure. that yeah, we yeah. yeah that we address if you.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So um, to summarize. Yeah, so he was married. He, in 1891, 92, he hits the West End Theater and becomes a smash hit. I mean, and there was this was before film, so the London Theater was kind of like Hollywood in a sense. And so he was fabulously successful working with the most expensive, expensive actors and actresses and set designers and all this stuff, speaking of consumer culture. And kind of like a Steven Spielberg for his age. And he, and he did four high society plays in succession, which were all big successes. And he had two of them running on the West End stage at the time. One was an ideal husband. The other one was The Importance of Being Earnest, his two most famous plays. When he went to trial for his homosexuality, he was sued by the father of his lover at the time. Lord Alfred Douglas. And so he goes to prison, two years hard labor. While that happens, his, his mother died. Uh, his wife died. My reading of that is maybe they had poor health, but I think they were just completely destroyed by this, this you know, debacle of their lives. And so Wilde wrote this letter to Lord Alfred Douglas from prison, called, now called De Profundis, out of the depths of, quote, from uh, the psalm. Out of the depths I cry unto you, O Lord. The letter kind of does a lot of things, but it has a kind of theory of his philosophy of art, and his philosophy of art has some of the things I was talking about, including this kind of consumer culture thing, but it more specifically uh, uh, gets theological and, and sees Christ as kind of the you know, model of art, or the icon of art, how art, art functions in the human world. So anyway, there's a lot to say in there. So Wilde gets out of prison, um, was unable to see, it was forbidden from seeing his children. Uh, he had two sons. He tried to go to a retreat in England, but was, uh, was rejected with the Jesuit order. Leaves to go to France. Um, he was disgraced in England, goes to France, and then lives for another couple of years, doesn't write much, and is basically drinking himself to death. And then he dies in the year 1900 in Paris. <clears throat> and on his deathbed, uh, his friend, whose name escapes me at the moment, will come to me, brought a Catholic priest. And, and, and it, you know, was this like a last minute thing? I mean, some critics will say like, oh, this is just like wild being playful again. Like it's not serious. He's always like doing things to like make, make himself look weird. But if we read his life, you see that he had a deep seated interest in Christianity for a long time, well, really for his whole life if you go back, but you see it in Dorian Gray, like we were just talking about. You see this this interest in in, in, in morality and ethics and, and in Christ. In his essay, The Soul of Man Under Socialism, uh, again, Christ kind of comes up centrally. And so on his deathbed, he was received into the Catholic Church and now is, is buried in Paris in the Catholic Cemetery.
0: Fascinating. Yeah, and I mean, everyone can have you know his own opinion about why and what, but I think we all experience that. When someone doesn't believe, their rejection of faith is pretty strong. Like you don't, you don't have a last minute conversion if if you're up against something. So at least that speaks of a, not that hatred towards Christianity or religion or the idea of an order that is not just the one we create ourselves that probably animated Wilde throughout his life, as we can guess from his works. Correct, yeah. So I think that perfect segue to this would be inviting again Professor Truman and inviting again <laughs> you and having you discuss this further. Would, I'm not, you know, I'm no expert fun. in either Nietzsche or Wilde. I'm just trying to find my way by reading the two of you. And it sounds like an interesting, but for our audience also, like, is there anything you'd recommend as uh, something they could read? I mean, maybe the books we mentioned, like what, what in particular, you know, for young students or for, Anyone who's actually listening that would want to you know, read Wild's,
1: more. He's a great writer. Any of his plays, I mean, as I said, he, he died at the age of 45. He died very young. Um, so there's, a, there's not that many works, actually. But his plays, his one great place to start is his uh, fairy tales. He has a couple of collections of fairy tales, which are very moral, too. I mean, they're, they're like his plays. They kind of play with morality, but really, they, they, are they written for children? I mean, children can read them. For the most part, but yeah, his uh, story—that's
0: well, something I didn't know about. So I'm, gonna, I'm gonna look yeah. for the fairy tales.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's some. There's some great ones. Yeah, I, I love teaching them.
0: Very nice. Well, I want to thank you, Paul. And today you're gonna be here with us for a little longer. So, um, Dr. Fortunato today is gonna be our speaker for the undergraduate fellows, and then we're gonna share uh, dinner with the undergraduate fellows or brilliant students and Professor Fortunato. So we'll have we'll have this chance to have you a little longer here with us. So I want to thank you again for your time now, for your time this evening.
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: And I want to thank our audience. And please, you know, if you like this episode and if you like this conversation, remember to share it with your friends, to like it. And if you can, of course, you know, if you want to donate to the Austin Institute, that helps us continue with our mission, with our education for students and creating this content also for, for you all, everywhere you are. Thank you again, Paul.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you like this episode, remember to share it among your friends, subscribe to our channel, and if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute. With your support, we can continue to do this, we can continue our programming, and of course, we will continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.